who was a Jew. But whereas in the next few weeks we'll discuss this from a technical point of view, from a halachic point of view, and also um, how the law might have changed over time in the Second Temple period, tonight we're not going to concern ourselves with the law. We're going to concern ourselves with how do you identify a Jew? How do you know a Jew when you see him? It's a serious question. He looks Jewish. So it, it, it's such a statement at all uh, realistic in the, in the world of antiquity, in Second Temple times? That's the question. Well, let's find out. Okay. Yeah, all right. Well, they didn't, they didn't dress like that back then. So the first issue is that Jews don't look distinctive in the bodily sense. There was no um, hooked nose, which in the later medieval and early modern period was the... Uh, the, the way that Ashkenazic Jews were, were thought to have looked. We'll, we'll see in a second. Um, but there, there's no skin tone which was identified with the Jew. Uh, no issue of, of being tall or short, rotund or skinny. Jews could, be, could look many different ways. And if we go through the, the Greco-Roman writers, we'll find about a dozen different descriptions of the way a Jew looked. Individual Jews and Every time the description is totally different. So there was no archetypical way that a Jew looked, uh, you know, naked from head to toe. Well, huh? Why should there be? There, w- there shouldn't be, given that Jews are not really a, a distinct racial group. They're just uh, one of many Semitic peoples in the Middle East. So it would make sense that they would look similar to, similarly to those who lived in, the, you know, in, in Idumea or the Transjordanian regions or just northern Lebanon. Why would they look noticeably different? Huh? So we'll, so we'll get to Bris and whether or not people walked around naked. That's going to be a major issue in these sources. Yeah. Yeah. Right, because they're darker skinned. Yeah. Okay, so now what about what about clothing? Could you identify a Jew by uh, the way they style themselves? So, first, even before we get to clothing, what about hairstyle? Is there a noticeably Jewish hairstyle? And the answer is no. But there are noticeably pagan hairstyles that, in fact, the rabbis declared forbidden. Now, the Torah says uh, you're not allowed to round the corners of your head. That's why you can't have the Scotty Pippen haircut. Um, but other than that, there was no particularly Jewish haircut. So if a Jew wanted to blend into Gentile society, what they could do and maybe this would be effective, is to have a pagan-style haircut. So, for example, in Tosefta, in Meshavah, the first source on the page, you have Elu Devar Midarke Ha'emori Hamesaper Kumi Vaose Belorit. If you had the Kumi-style haircut, which um, a lot of NBA players have today, where they cut off certain parts right near above the ear, uh, make like an indentation, uh, that's a pagan-style haircut. And Belorit was a ponytail uh, of a certain type, uh, that was like a military-style ponytail. Uh, if, you t- if you had that, you were following the ways of the heathens, and so the rabbis were against it. It was, don't follow the ways of the Gentile. So if a Jew had that, they wouldn't look too Jewish. In Gemara Me'ila, Daf Yud Zayin, the second source on the page, we have uh, an example of that. Uh, so, 
פעם אחת גזרה המלכות גזירה, שלא ישמרו את השבת ושלא ימולו את בניהם ושיבעלו את הנידות. One time the, 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 the government, the Roman government, let's assume this is during the Hadrianic persecution, so post a little bit short, uh, post-temple, they decreed that the Jews must violate the Sabbath, not circumcise their children, and uh, cohabit with, with menstruants. What happened? Halach Rabbi Ruven ben Istraboli, Visiper Komi, so a certain Rabbi Ruven, he uh, had a Komi haircut, so a Gentile style haircut. Behalach via Shavimahem, and he went to discuss things with them. Amalahem, Misha Yeshlo Oyev, if you have an enemy, Ya'anil Ya'ashir, do you want him to be rich or do you want him to be poor? And so, what's the answer? You want your enemy to be poor. So, if you want your enemy to be poor, uh, then should they work on the Sabbath or not work on the Sabbath? They should not work on the Sabbath. If you do six days business, it makes you less rich than if you do seven days business. And if you want someone to be uh, strong or weak, should you circumcise them or not? Of course, if you want them to be weak, circumcise them. It causes bodily stress. And if you want them to procreate, should they cohabit with menstruants? No, because that's not a time for procreation. So he was able to convince them uh, to undo the various edicts which were contrary to the Torah using logical arguments, uh, anti-Semitic arguments. Um, but what's the point of this story? He wanted to blend in and not be identified as a Jew. So there was no Jewish haircut, but there was an obviously Gentile haircut. So you could pass in certain ways. Okay. But was there an obviously Jewish attire? And the answer is no. If we go to the Sifri and Divr Hayamim, it says, Tamir Chachamim, Nikarim Behilucham, how do you identify a Torah scholar? In the way they walk, in the way they speak, and how they wrap themselves in the public space, how they dress themselves. What does this say about your average Jew? That you couldn't recognize them. That a scholar, a sage of the Torah, was special. You knew, one, you knew him when you saw him. But at your average Chaim Yankel, would you know he was a Jew or a Goa? You wouldn't know. Not by, not by dress. I would think if you had a Goyish to sage, you would know that he was, in fact, a sage. Right, so, it's, so, so, so it seems that, that intellectuals looked different from your average person, regardless of faith group. That they were on a pedestal uh, for their learning. But Jew versus Gentile, without great wisdom, does, you, you wouldn't know. Okay. Uh, huh? No, the, sage, the sages had jobs like everybody else, the blacksmiths, uh, silversmiths, they, they, they did all, all types of work. Yeah, about how rabbis had uh, menial labor. Okay, So, uh, there was no distinct Jewish, Jewish dress until the, the medieval Christian uh, state imposed it upon the Jews. But that in the classical period, in, in late antiquity, Nothing was coerced upon the Jew. They could wear whatever they wanted. And so they wore what everyone else wore. There is a, uh, in the famous work of Justin Mar- Martyr, uh, The Dialogue with Trifo the Jew, there, in the beginning of the book, uh, Trifo has to identify himself because otherwise his identity would not have been known. He was a Jew, a pious Jew at that, and he has an encounter with some hostile, you know, a hostile interlocutor, but that person doesn't know he's a Jew until he says so. You, would, you wouldn't know just by looking at him. Uh, what about language? So are Jews identifiable uh, by language? And the answer is no, because Jews spoke Greek. Now, the literate Jews spoke a better quality Greek. 
the illiterate Jews, what we would call the Amharits, or those of lesser social standing, spoke uh, debased Greek. But there's something that they didn't do that would become the popular practice in medieval times. And what is that? Create a hybrid language, a jargon. So what are the various jargons that existed in Jewish history? Number one, Yiddish, Jewish. Okay, so Ladino, Judeo-Arabic, and Judeo-Persian. Uh, these these are languages that exist to this day and are spoken by people to this day. But in Eretz Yisrael and in the Greco-Roman diaspora, there was no Jewish dialect. And there was no uh, English either. It's not like they, uh, their, their Greek was peppered with Judaic expressions. It was your average... If they spoke Greek, it was really Greek of better or lesser quality, but... Uh, not uh, influenced too heavily by uh, Jewish expressions. So what was the place of Aramaic or Hebrew in those days? The pl- so Aramaic replaced Hebrew as the spoken language of ethnically Jewish Jews who, uh, not, who do not interact much with the outside world. And in the Second Commonwealth, at some point uh, early on in the Second Commonwealth, Hebrew was basically lost uh, uh, as, a, as a, a spoken language among the masses. They spoke Aramaic because that was, the la- that was the lingua franca and that was the official language in the western part of the Persian Empire. Um, in, after the Macedonian takeover, it remained the language of your average Jew who lived in the cloistered environment of the Judean hinterlands. But if you lived closer to the coast, where there were more Gentiles, then you were likely to give up on the Aramaic over time and speak Greek. So basically Hebrew stopped being spoken. Yes, it was only a language. It was only a language of liturgy and uh, uh, sophisticated writings. Yeah, but aside from that, nothing happened until about years ago. There were attempts by certain Tanaitic figures to preserve Hebrew, notably the House of the Patriarch. Rebbe tried to preserve Hebrew and spoke dismissively of those who who used a jargon language and said that if you live in uh, Eretz Yisrael, either speak Hebrew or speak Greek, but don't speak Aramaic or Judeo-Aramaic. And if you live in Babylonia, speak either Persian or or uh, either speak Hebrew as a Jew or Persian as a citizen of the uh, of society. Don't speak uh, Eastern Aramaic because that's just a Judeo corruption. Um, so he wanted pure language and so Aramaic as a, as a jargon. But he was an exception to the rule. Even the scholarly class didn't speak Hebrew; they spoke Aramaic. So Aramaic was not spoken by the Aramaic was not spoken by the Gentiles of Eretz Israel by the by the the Roman period for sure. Even in the Greek period, it wasn't spoken by Gentiles because who were the Gentiles? They were Macedonian imports. Yeah. But there are still villages in Syria where they speak Aramaic. So that's different. Those are indigenous peoples in Mesopotamia who spoke Aramaic from the days of the Chaldean Empire. But the people who came from Europe, who were who were who were imported uh, with the Greek with the Greek conquest, that wasn't their language. They spoke Greek. Okay. So, uh, what about uh, the way people uh, people dressed? We said the sages looked differently. But what about your average Jew? So, was there a, a, a Jewish style of dress? No. But there was a Gentile style of dress. So if we go to Maccabee, 2 Maccabees chapter 4, verse 12, we find that during the uh, Antiochian persecutions, we see, for he built gladly a place of exercise under the tower itself, and brought the chief young men under his subjection, and made them wear a hat. Made them wear a hat? It sounds like uh, yeshiva high school. They make you wear a hat during davening. No, this was a, a, a Gentile, a, a pagan-style hat. So you would be known 
as looking un-Jewish if you wore that hat. Not that there was some other, uh, you know, sartorial expression that was Jewish, it's simply this is very un-Jewish. And we have a Mishnah in Shabbos, which goes to show you that Jews behave differently depending upon where they lived. This is a, chapter 6 of, of Mishnah Shabbos deals with matters of jewelry and women, and what kind of jewelry you're allowed to wear in the public sphere on Shabbos, lest you uh, take it off and show it to your neighbor and be guilty of carrying in, in, in Rishus Harabim. So the Mishnah says, The young girls can go out with, braid, with the uh, strings flowing in their hair, and certain things in their ear with the ear piercing, so the Arab women can do this, and the Mediate women can do that, and the truth is everyone can do it, but the, but the sages spoke in what was. They spoke about commonalities. Now, are these Arab women? No, these are Jewish women who live in Arabia, or Jewish women who live in Madai. Because after all, the Arab Gentile women don't have Hilcha Shabbos. They don't have to be Sabbath observant, which is all about Jews. But depending upon what country you lived in, your method of, of adorning yourself with jewelry or, or tchotchkes that you put in your ears would be different following local practice. So you couldn't identify a Jewish woman from a pagan woman. They looked the same. They wore the same kind of jewelry or had the same hairstyle. Okay. Um, and then again, you have in, in Third Maccabees, which is a book I've never quoted before. It's not even uh, in the Apocrypha. It's you know, it's in like the beyond the Apocrypha, like the uh, uh, the, 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 the totally bogus works that nobody accepted. So in, in Third Maccabees, it discusses uh, anti-Semitic situation in Alexandria, where Jews are being persecuted terribly. And it says those who are registered are to be branded on the body by fire with the ivy leaf sign of Dionysus and also to be assigned to their former limited civic status. So when there was a machlokas over rights of citizenship, Jews were persecuted by their tormentors. But it's interesting, they had to be branded uh, on the body with a, with, by fire. Why? Like during the Holocaust, you have to have numbers at Auschwitz, Why? because this is how you knew they were a Jew. If you just looked at them, you wouldn't know they were a Jew. So special designation by branding with fire. Now, yes, this is, a, this is a, a fictional work, but all fictional works have an element of, of historical truth to them. Namely, you, you couldn't identify somebody in, uh, as a Jew unless you, it was, there was a mark that they had to impose upon them. Now we have a story in, in Philo, the work against Flaccus, which talks about the anti-Semitic persecutions in Egypt in the year 38, 39, 40, when Caligula was the emperor, and they, they fought again over citizenship rights. So... The truth is, as I have said already, the whole business was a deliberate contrivance designed by the cruelty of Flaccus and of the multitude, in which even women were included, for they were dragged as captives, not only in the marketplace, but even in the middle of the theater, dragged upon stage any false accusation be brought against them, and the most painful insults, and then when it was found that they were of another race, they were dismissed. So it's like, uh, you know, the hijacking uh, that went to Entebbe. They, they checked the passports, if you were a Jew or a Goy, and the Goyim were sent packing, back off to France. So they, they captured people thinking they might be a Jew, but then they investigated and it turned out they weren't really Jewish. Okay? After they apprehended many women as Jewesses who were not so. Which means that just by looking at someone, you didn't know. And then with careful ex- uh, uh, investigation, you could find out. Okay. Uh, sometimes the fact that it, 
you couldn't identify a Jew versus a Gentile um, was not an issue of anti-Semitic persecution, but rather of rabbinic zeal coming to the fore uh, at the expense of someone who wasn't Jewish, and this causes problems. If a rabbi gets a little bit too boisterous in demanding tznius, well, it's one thing if he demands of it of his own congregants. It's quite another if he goes to Mrs. O'Reilly, thinking that Mrs. O'Reilly was Mrs. Manashevitz, uh, and then does something to her. So let's go to the Gemara in Brachos Tafchaf Maral. Rav Ada Barava Chazi Lahalkutis Tavilavisha Karbalta Bashuka. Rav Ada Barava saw a certain Kuthian woman. A Kuthian just means a non-Jewish woman in this instance who was wearing a Karbalta. Now a Karbalta, we're not exactly sure what it was, but it was some kind of provocative garment that a, a good pious Jewess would never wear. Certainly not in public. Savar de Bas Yisrael. He, he thought she was Jewish. Kam Kare Mina. So he tore it right off of her and exposed her in public. Igli Milsa de Kusisi, he then found out that she wasn't Jewish. She was Mrs. O'Reilly. Why did he tear it off if, he, if it's not common? He, he, he thought she was a Jew. Right. All right. So Shaimua, Abame Azuzi, the, gov- the local government fined him $400. $400. Amar la Mashmach, he asked her, What's your name? Amar la Matun. So he, she said to him, My name is Matun. So Amar la Matun, Matun, Abame Azuzi, Shavya. He says, You were worth the $400. Meaning. She was good looking. Well, no, 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 no. <laughs> No, that, that my, my act of pious rage will be rewarded by the Almighty for my good intentions that I'm willing to, for, to give up in the Olam Hazer $400 because I know the schar in the next world will be very great for my, my zealotry. I'm reminded of a story in Great Neck when I was growing up where Rabbi Adaret came and busted up a party that had mixed dancing, a private party where he wasn't even the rabbi of these people. And it made, it made the papers. Uh, and it was, uh, Some people thought it was a Chil Hashem, some people thought it was a Kiddush Hashem, and some people just didn't want to hear about it. Um, so, but again, this story shows that Jews had trouble identifying their own kinsmen. Aside from the fact that a Gentile might not be able to distinguish between Jew and Gentile, even a Jew had trouble identifying people. Right, that's true. Right, that's true. That's true. You're right. It's not. It's not easy in the United States to identify an Ashkenazic Jew without religious garb. Because you look like a, any other white guy. Well, I'm a little bit better at that. <laughs> okay, so um, what about names? So, in the diaspora, the Jews had Gentile-sounding names, and on the basis of their signature alone, you might have thought this is a non-Jewish document. Uh, and yet we find that, no, no, it might very well be Jewish because uh, people had uh, the same names as everyone else in the society in which they lived. They may have also had a Jewish name for liturgical purposes like Jews in Europe had, like, you know, Zev Wolf. The name was Wolf, but for Torah they called him Zev. Or Arya Leib. Uh, they called him Leib, Lion, but for the Torah they called him Arya. Uh in, in, in Second Temple times, outside of Eretz Yisrael, and even in Eretz Yisrael for certain people, there were these double names. Uh, but the main one was a Gentile one, or Gentile-sounding one. We still have it. We st- yeah, we still In America, it's the common practice among uh, even traditional Jews. Okay. So, what about obviously Jewish clothing? Like tefillin and talus. Shouldn't that give people away? 
Shouldn't that be an identifying mark? Okay, so there we go. We're on the right track here. Most people didn't have it. So if we look in, if we look in, um, go back into the sources just for a second. There, there were certain things that Jews didn't do. Jews didn't wear black shoes. Why not? We don't really know. But if you go to Gemara and Tanis twenty twenty two a, they asked a certain Jew, "Why is it that you didn't have fringes? You didn't have your tzitzis, and you don't, you, you're, you're wearing black shoes, and Jews don't wear black shoes." I need to insert myself into heathen society and to make sure they don't know that I'm a Jew. For undercover reasons, I have to, for re- you know, I have to keep my identity a secret. So I don't do anything that's going to give me away. So black shoes, something <coughs> Jews wouldn't do. If he wore the black shoes, it would be a further reason for people not to be suspicious of him. Where was this? This was in, in Babylonia. Okay. Yeah. Okay, times change. Times change. Now, is this, is this around the source of not wearing Begit Nachri? So, Begit Nachri is a term that doesn't appear in the in, in the Torah or for the Talmud. It, it, it's a it's a it's a later achronic, very achronic idea um, that basically the last three hundred years. So it, there's a very famous passage uh, that talks about Kiddush Hashem, about martyrdom, and under what circumstances martyrdom is necessary or appropriate. And the, 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 the discussion of the three cardinal sins of Gili Arayot, Shvichut Amim, Avodah Zarah, but at time of persecution, according to the more rigorous definition of, of Kiddush Hashem, you're supposed to, mar- to give up yourself in martyrdom even uh, for lesser offenses. Even to change the color of your shoelaces to wear the Gentile color. So we see again that shoes, there was a, there was a difference between Jews and Gentiles. Not that Jews had an obviously Jewish shoe, but there were certain Gentile shoes that Jews wouldn't wear. And if you were pressured to do so in time of Shmad, the rigorous definition required that you give up your, your life. Okay, but what about uh, Talis and Tefillin? So, go to the Gemara in Menachos 43a. Ein adam rashai limkor talit mitzuyetzet lo'oved kochavim. A person is not allowed to sell a, 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 a talis with tzitzis to a Gentile ad sheyatir tzitziotah until you detach the fringes. So, it's a clothing, it's an article of clothing like any, anything, anything else, and you can sell it to a goy, but you can't have it look uh, Jewish. It's got to just be the, the four-cornered uh, shawl without the, without the tassels at the end. Why? Why must you detach the tzitzis? So, Gemara Hay says, one possibility, mishum zona, because of a harlotry. What does that mean? I know what it means. Well, what, in the context here, oh. it means that if a zona were to get her hands on a talus, and that talus looks like it used to be the one that Goldberg, who sits in the third row over there, wears on shul, people would suspect him of, of uh, cohabiting with a, with a harlot. So you don't want to have a, a, a Jewish article of clothing with which she could blackmail somebody or make, make things look unpleasant. Um, but the other answer is... I, nothing's stopping them from doing that, but we can't facilitate what's going to what's going to lead to blackmail. 
All right. The other answer, and this affects the people who, who pick up uh, uh, stranded cars on Route 17 going upstate, Shema Maybe you'll go on the road with him and he'll kill you. Like the, the, the guy who puts a yarmulke on when his car breaks down on the way up to the Catskills and you stop off because you think he looks like a Yid and he comes in your car and he kills you. So that's what they're worried about here. If the guy has tzitzis, he might do that. This obviously shows the ill will that both sides had towards each other and Jews were very suspicious of their heathen neighbors. In Israel, you had the, the Arabs Right, and then kidnap people and kill them. Yeah, yeah, sure. So... Uh, so, so that's an issue where we don't want them to have obviously Jewish garb because Jewish garb would make them would make us think that they are Jewish. Well, in times of crisis, you try to blend in. Okay, so let's go to another one. It's Avos Rabinas, and this is one of the more uh, famous stories in, in rabbinic literature uh, for. Uh, Don Lekavskos issues. Masa be'isha achas be'ashkelon. There was a certain woman in Ashkelon, which was known to be a Gentile city. It's, after it's a coastal city, a Philistine city. There wasn't a more beautiful woman in the whole world, like Chava, like the, like like uh, from Eve, from the Garden of Eden. Uh, she was the most beautiful woman who ever lived. Ve'halach Rabbi Yoshua le'daberima, and Yoshua went to speak to her. When he got to the door of her house, he took off his cloak, and took off his tefillin. And when he went inside, he locked the door. When he went out, he went to the mikveh. So, what happened? Something good. Well, he says to his disciples, New boys, what do you think I did? What do you think happened here? So Amrulo, and I, I skip most of the paragraph. Uh, they said, "Well, maybe you took off tefillin so that, that uh, a holy matter, a pure thing, should not go into a place of impurity, um, and or alternatively, so that no one should recognize that you were a Jew. Not that uh, you did anything sinful, but that you had legitimate reason to try to conceal your Jewish identity in this case." So, why do I bring this story? Just to show why you that... It does, doesn't actually say what he was doing there. But the, the purpose of its appearance in Avos de Rabbi Nassan is a commentary on Don Lekav's chus, that when you see something very suspicious, where you could easily assume the worst happened, that you're supposed to assume not the worst, something much more benign. Um, but for our purposes here, it just means that to fill in would identify you as a Jew. The absence of tefillin, even on a guy who looks like a rabbi, might make him not an obvious Jew. That yes, the, the, the mitzvah items will give you away, but in the absence of those mitzvah items, you might blend in very easily. Okay, so who wore the mitzvah items? Did your average Jew have a, a talit mitzuyetzit, a, a four-cornered garment that had fringes on the end for religious purposes? So the Sifri says... Al Shmona, on four corners and not on eight corners. So if, if if your article of clothing has more than four corners, it's exempt. And many articles of clothing are not square or rectangular. They're either circular or five corners, six corners, whatever it might be. You don't have to put the fringes. 
also kesutcha prat latoga ulatubla. All these various types of uh, Greek style garments, like the toga, which don't have four corners, enam merubaim, are exempt. So the cloak of of uh, of, of uh, late antiquity, which Jews many Jews wore would not have had tzitzis, not because the person wearing it was religiously lax or didn't care, but simply because it was exempt. So if that's true, you're not going to notice anything. He's not going to look like a Jew. But even beyond that, we have a Gemara Brachos from Zayin Rebez. How do you define an Amaharetz? It's a great question. It's a, I mean, it's a nasty term, Amaharetz, that we, used to th- we throw around to make fun of people. Uh, so-and-so is an Amaharetz. But it has a technical meaning a real precise meaning in the ancient world. So what is it? If you don't daven shma morning and evening. Now, most Jews probably did recite some kind of liturgy. So that's a charitable viewpoint that says most people are not Amaretz. Rabbi Yeshua, if you don't put on tefillin. Benazah says, you don't have tzitzis. Now, most Jews didn't have tefillin. We don't know about the tzitzis, but the point is a more uh, all-encompassing view of the Amaretz, that of uh, Rabbi Yoshua, and we know most Jews were Amaretz, then most Jews didn't wear tefillin. If most Jews didn't wear tefillin, they were halachically exempt from the Talis ben so what religious article were they wearing? Answer, nothing at all. And if nothing at all, how do you know they're Jewish? You don't. Okay, so that's uh, an important element here. Um, there's another uh, midrashic source. <laughs> yeah, sure, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to get to how you do identify the Jew, and it's going to either be by association or by religious observance. And you're going to shul is both. It's association because there are a lot of other Jews there, and it's religious observance because it's a it's a, it's a it's a liturgical matter. Okay, but one other source. Go to um, uh, Vayikra Rabbah, the second source from the bottom of the page, uh, and this is a very very famous passage that that co- that came up again in the 19th century, but in a bastardized version of it among the the the, Charedim, the early Haredim of Hungary. Okay, Rav Huna B'Shem Bar Kapara. For four reasons, our ancestors were redeemed from Egypt. What are these four reasons? They didn't change their names, or their language, and they didn't say Lashonhara, and they weren't parots be'erva, they weren't licentious. What do you mean they didn't change their name? They went down Ruven Shimon, and they came up Ruven Shimon. And, 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 and instead of uh, Yehuda being called Rufus, and Reuven being called Lulianus, and Yosef being called Listus, and Benjamin being called Alexander. So the, the, the Medrash gives us names, common names in, in Roman times that Jews might have had, uh, as in place of biblical sounding names. Well, so says the legend, that because he was because he was nice to, 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 the, to the Jews and didn't destroy the temple, they made a deal with him, they made all the kids Alexander. It makes for a good legend. But, why do I bring up this Midrash? Because this Midrash, like all Midrashim, homiletic Midrashim, are designed to speak to the audience in, their, in its own generation. We left Egypt because we were good about these things. We are not redeemed now because we are bad about these things. How so? We changed our, our names 
We're calling people Rufus and Lulianus and Justus and Alexander. We changed our language in that we don't speak Hebrew anymore. We don't even speak Aramaic anymore for a lot of them. They, don't, they spoke uh, Greek. All right. They spoke Lush and Hara about each other. The, we, we, we learned about the various divisions, political divisions within Judean life in the end of the Second Commonwealth period. And Parutz Be'erva, there was a lot of uh, sexual depravity towards the end, which they weren't so proud of. Okay, so this Midrash speaks to its audience. They were good back then, we're not so good now on matters of language and name. Now, why, why did I say that this Midrash is quoted by the early Haredim in Hungary? And how, how do they bastardize it? They say something about the address. Correct, exactly. The in the literature of, of Rav Schlesinger and uh, Akiva Yosef Schlesinger and the uh, the debate the of Michalowicz in Hungary, which banned everything from uh, uh, vernacular sermon to choirs to the organ to the iPhone, they banned everything. A secular education. Okay, what did they claim? Shalem. A Jew must be complete in that we don't change our shame, lashon, and malbush, on the basis of this midrash. But there's no midrash based upon good manuscripts that ever said malbush. They didn't change name, they didn't change uh, language, so says the midrash about the, the Yotzei Mitzrayim, but never says anything about malbush. Uh, now, wh- why not? Because the Jew in, Gre- in the Greco-Roman period, even the rabbi was not attacking his congregants or his constituency over their attire. The fact that they dressed like Goyim wasn't seen as sinful or a betrayal of Jewish identity, whereas the change of language and the change of name was a betrayal of Jewish identity. It was limited, yes. Okay. Okay, but, the, but, the, but, but what, I, what, my, what I just said is, is a key point. The, the authorities of Judaism were, were, were disappointed in the change of language and the change of name, but really didn't care about the change of dress because that was not seen as integral to your ethnic or religious heritage. Okay. Um, we did the issue of names, which appears in, in Tosefta and Gittin, so we, we covered pretty much all the sources on uh, the first page. Okay. What about bris mila? So... Shouldn't Brismila give you away? And the answer is that in the Hellenistic period in Judea, a Jew was a, a Jew was mahul was was circumcised, a non-Jew was an arel was uncircumcised, and a Jew who wanted to blend in was a mashuch had the epispasm. How do you pronounce it? Uh, the reversal of circumcision. But the truth be told. In the eastern lands, many non-Jewish ethnic groups also had the practice of circumcision. So if you were interacting with, with heathens who were not uh, uh, Hellenic peoples, but rather were the so-called barbarian peoples, then y- you might very well find that your neighbor who isn't Jewish is circumcised. Um, but the issue is, would anybody really be checking? I mean, people wear clothing. They don't walk around naked. So how would anyone know? Ah, okay. So the Roman baths were a place where you could, where you might find people walking around naked. Did Jews go to the Roman baths? And the answer is only the elite of society tended to do so. So let's go to the top of the second page here. Mishnah of Orizara. Shal proklos ben plosphus et rabban gamliel. So 
a certain person with a very heathen-sounding name asked Rabban Gamliel, Be'ako, in Acre, which is a, a mixed city, but a largely pe- pagan city, as it is today, yeah? So it was the bath of Aphrodite with a statue. And Rabban Gamliel is there. He's bathing in the Aphrodite bath house. Amarlo, Katubu Torah it says in your Torah, You shouldn't touch the, the spoils of war, the, uh, the idolatrous spoils of war. That stay away from these things. But how could you go to this bath where there's a, a statue of a Greek goddess? So, I don't give answers on religious questions while we're in the bathhouse. Now, it's true, you're not supposed to talk Torah while naked, or for that matter, in a place where other people are walking around unclothed. Kishiyatsa, when they walked out, I didn't enter into her domain, she entered into my domain. How do you like that answer? It's a great answer. You don't say, let's make a bathhouse as an adornment to, the, to, to a, a shrine for Aphrodite. But rather we say, let's make a statue of Aphrodite as an adornment to the bathhouse. So the bathhouse is the primary thing. I came here to take the schwitz or to get the cold waters. I and I don't care about the, about the, the statue, which is just uh, you know, wasted money for uh, uh, artwork on, on, on the wall or on the side. Okay. It's, a, it's the functional equivalent of it, Salem. It's a, it's a statue of a Greek goddess. I, mean, okay. I would see how the logic, the logic would be that he went there maybe because if they see him, they uh-huh. wouldn't leave him. <laughs> Alright, so why he was there, let's assume it's because as a patriarch, as an elitist, and he was about as elitist as you can get in, in, in the early rabbinic period, he enjoyed the finer things in life, and the, to, to refrain from going to a bathhouse uh, because of idolatrous issues didn't concern him. Uh, and, he com- and, he com- and, he comes, and he comes up with a good explanation for why, why it's uh, halakhically okay. But the point is, your average Jew is not doing this, not going to the bathhouse, only the elite are going to the bathhouse. How do I know that public nakedness was frowned upon, aside from just general knowledge of our tradition. There's a Sifri in Devarim. Eluha ba'im mi barbaria o mi maritania. Those who come from the Barbary coast, like the word barbarian, so North Africa or Mauritania, mehalchin arumim. They walk around naked in the public sphere. Ein lecha adam bazuyu pagum ba'olam lahamalech arum bashuk. The most disgusting and repulsive thing that any person can do is walk naked in public. And so, so Judaism, rabbinic Judaism... Male, male. This is a male-dominated universe we're talking about here. So, uh, it's uh, the rabbinic literature is saying that we don't do these sorts of things, and those who do are like not subhuman, but are about as low as you can get on the on the pole of humanity. Okay. So, are there any episodes of someone being checked for their Jewishness by having their pants pulled down, and the uh, so w- w- let's assume that they're not going to the bathhouse uh, with regularity. So we have a, 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 a medrash in Bereshis Rabbah where it says that Yosef reveals himself, his identity to his brothers, and they don't believe him right away. So what does he do? He drops his trousers and he shows them his bris and then they know that he's, uh, he's Yosef. 
Of course, the problem with this is that the ancient Egyptians were also circumcised. So it would have proven nothing. But the rabbis who wrote this medrash didn't know that. So you can't blame them for getting it wrong. Um, now, a, another a, a proof text that, that we're not in the habit of, of checking people uh, by looking at their, their, their genitalia is a Yerushalmi in Megillah. And I actually quoted this Yerushalmi a few other times. It's a famous passage about Gentiles getting a reward in the afterlife. So it's a, one of the Rebbe and Antonina stories. And if you remember from two years ago, we discussed Rebbe Antonina's stories, how that was probably Caracalla, the Roman emperor from the year 211 to 219, who actually did encounter Rebbe in Eretz Yisrael in the year 216, and he was something of an intellectual. So uh, these stories, while probably somewhat fictionalized, have a kernel of truth to them. So Antonina Samar Rebbe, Mechilta at min Leviathan, am I going to eat from the Leviathan? I mean, do I have a portion in the world to come where the Leviathan is the food for the righteous? Amalein, Rebbe says, yes. So and then he says, what about, can I eat from the Passover, the Pisra? And Rebbe says, no. To which Antoninus responds, if I can eat from the Leviathan in the world to come, what's the big deal about eating from the Passover lamb in, the world, in this world, in the Olam Hazeb? It doesn't really make any sense. So Rebbe says, uh, you're right, it doesn't really make much sense, but the, the, the word of God is the word of God. The Xerus Akasuv, I can't do anything about it. It says a, 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 an Arel, a, a, a pagan, cannot eat, a, an uncircumcised person cannot eat of the Pesach. Uh, so, to which Antoninus responds, well, I just went to the surgeon and got my, uh, myself taken care of. I have a bris. Uh, um, look at it. See, look. To which Rebbe responds, okay. I've never, I've, no, I've never even looked at my own bris, let alone am I going to look at yours. Now, Rebbe was a prudish fellow. It says that he was very you know, refrained from all matters of uh, sexuality uh, to an extreme. But, his point is, we are not in the habit of looking at people's uh, genitals to see if they're Jewish. So I'm not going to start looking now. I mean, we just don't do these things. Okay? Um, but were there other exceptions where we did uh, check people for bris? And the answer is yes. The Gentiles did it after the year 70. Because after 70, what happened to the Machatzir HaShekel? It became the Fiscus Judaicus, and it was a fine imposed upon Jews by the Roman Empire that every single Jew had to pay to uh, the temple of of Jupiter Capitolina. So it was a a slap in the face to us that our religious ritual was turned into a punishment that would support paganism. In the beginning, in the early 70s, this was only imposed upon those people who were practicing Jews. But if you were a Jew by birth but had walked away from religion, it was not imposed upon you. Later, it was imposed upon all Jews uh, by birth and by uh, profession. Uh, meaning if you, you said you were a Jew or you act like a Jew, you were also fine thusly. And if you had been born into a Judean family, even if you were an agnostic at this point, you had to pay the fine. So there were certain people who tried to avoid paying the Fiscus Judegus by blending in. And a certain 90-year-old man in Ephesus was accused of being a Jew despite trying to pretend that he wasn't a Jew, and they dropped his pants and they saw that he was circumcised. So that's like right out of the Nazi era, uh, where, they, where they, were, they were checking, the Gentiles were checking the bris to see who was a Jew. But it goes to show you that absent checking that, you wouldn't have known. Just from attire and looks, you, you wouldn't have known. What about, did, ever, did Jews ever check it? So Rebbe says, we don't do such things. It's not our practice. It's not our practice. In truth, there was a time when they did it. In the, uh, the second century BCE, in the early era of the Hasmonean uh, dominance over Judean life, uh, 
they ran around the countryside checking circumcision of babies. Why? Because during the, the persecution of Antiochus IV, when bris milah was forbidden, so plenty of people were not willing to, to submit to martyrdom and die for the cause by, by circumcising their children. They let the kid remain in Aurel, uncircumcised. Well, now the persecution is over and the Maccabees are running wild uh, for, for rejuvenated uh, Yadus and Torah. So they go around checking, did you circumcise your kid? Did you, cir- did you circumcise your kid? They're busting into homes and checking them in, the, in, the, in the nursery. That's one time when they did it. Another time was in the forced conversion of the Idumeans and the Iturians. The Idumeans in the south and the Iturians in the north. What was that conversion? Was it a wholesale adoption of Tayag Mitzvahs? No. Herod's grandfather wasn't uh, Shomer Shabbos and keeping glad kosher. What did they do? They forced them to circumcise. And that token association with the religion of Judaism was their conversion. So how do you know that somebody did it? You check. You actually look. Did, uh, did, he, convert, did, he, did he circumcise? So that's when they were looking at the, at the male body parts. But in general, other than those episodes, we don't do these things. Okay. So circumcision was neither in, an infallible nor a usable mark of Jewish identity. Okay. What about record keeping? Did they keep accurate records of who was Jewish? And the answer is that in temple, ta- temple days, there were the Megillot Yuchasin, the family tree, the, 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 a- the hopefully accurate lineage recorded on paper, but this was only for Kohanim, who had to serve in the Beit HaMikdash, and you had to verify their Kohanic status before the authorities of the temple would allow them to serve. But if you were an average Yisrael, or even a Levi for that matter, was there such an important need to know who your father was, a grandfather and great-grandfather? Nah, not really. You lived in a Judean society, presumably you were Jewish, nobody was keeping accurate records. And so, you didn't have that. After the year 70, in the diaspora, there were no Megillot Yuchasin in public archives. And as for conversion, so conversion records, which today are a big deal, and I have in my office, uh, in my shul, I have a a folder that I keep very carefully, methodically, all 10 years of my my years in the rabbinate, every person I ever converted with their picture and their date of birth and social security number. I mean, you have to really be careful about these things, records of conversion. Did, did, Did you have that in antiquity? No. Because prior to the year 70, in the temple days, conversion was not a systematized thing. There was no uniform uh, ritual even for what conversion was. Some said it was bris, some said it was big bris and mikvah, some said it was a plus a sacrifice. There, there was no uniform system. It was a private matter. After the year 70 also, we don't really find that uh, re- records are kept. So how did people know the facts of the past? Mother the daughter, mother the daughter. So you knew the facts of the past by, uh, uh, from memory, oral, oral testimony, not by looking at a, at a written record. So, for example, we have, if you look in the sources, Mishnah and Kesubos, Perak Beis Mishnah Yud, lehagid begodlan mashira'u bekotnan. Uh, the following are reliable to, to, re- to report when they're older what they saw in their childhood, what they saw many years earlier. You can testify this is daddy's signature, or or my rabbi's signature, uh, or my brother's signature, or I, saw that, I remember that such, such a, a woman went out on her wedding day with her hair uncovered. 
Shehiish Ploni, Yotzim Beis Sefer Lipo Lechol Betruma, or that so and so left Yeshiva when he was a kid and went to the mikvah and ate Truma, which proves that he's a Kohen. Um, so, memories of the past can verify that so-and-so was an unmarried woman or was a Kohen. The halachic status of people can be determined by a distant memory from the past that I'm now going to relate uh, to a court today. But what about a written record? Nobody talks about written records. Why? They, they didn't keep them, for the most part. This, is, this was not part of Jewish life other than Kohanic status in Temple days. Okay. And what so, about the Goyim? Did they keep records? fastidiously? <coughs> so the Romans did. The Romans were very interested in paperwork. Uh, the Greeks uh, also, to a lesser extent. Um, the, uh, the Persians were, int- uh, were, were in the, into epistles, into uh, me- uh, mess- messages sent in writing from the authorities. But the Romans were more interested in accurate record-keeping about citizens. But even they... Uh, did not keep real records of who had citizenship because oftentimes it was uncertain who was a citizen, whether whole categories of people were considered citizens or not, whole cities or classes, uh, socioeconomic classes, and then they would fight it out, do we have citizenship rights or not? People could claim that they were citizens of Rome, you know, living in one of the provinces, and get away with it, even if it wasn't true just as you could claim to be a Jew and get away with it, even if it's not true. Paul, Saul of Tarsus, claimed he was a Roman citizen. And what, what good did that do him? It allowed him to escape judgment in, in Palestine, in Judea, to go to Rome for adjudication, because the right of the Roman citizen was to be judged in the court of the emperor. Was he really a Roman citizen? Who, who knows? But he, he said he was, so by acclamation, uh, by assertion, uh, there you go. You have, the, have these rights. The same thing could be true about Jews. So, how then did you know who was Jewish? Two possibilities. Yes, and the reason why we're able to go by his word is because there are no significant halachic things that are happening now that involve a Kohen. Getting the first aliyah, leading the benching, are low-level matters that are matters of kavod, not truly that belong to the Kohen by Torah law. Duchening is the most serious thing that they can do, but even that is not nearly on par with avodat mizbeach, the service of the altar. If we had that, we need to have a more rigorous definition. But the Kohen doesn't even eat challah anymore. Why? Because challah requires real Kohanic status. And even challah's chutzla arts, which is not Torah challah, but rabbinic challah, they don't eat anymore. Partly because of issues of impurity, of tum of but also because we don't know who's a real Kohen. So we don't let people do serious Kohanic things anymore. Um, how do you know who's Jewish? Well, one possibility is this person hangs out with other Jews by association. The other is that they observe religious practices. Now, the first option, uh, J- Jewish by association, uh, presumes that Jews stand apart. They're amlavadad yishkon. So if, a, if you see a, a, a particular person with other Jews, most likely that person is also a Jew, because why would a Gentile be hanging around with them? Uh, but was this really true? Yes, the Jews were accused of misanthropy, of hating others, and of clannishness, But those were accusations leveled against us by anti-Semites with an axe to grind, who weren't always being honest about what really happened. So, 
in fact, were Jews alone? Answer, not really. So, for example, in the New Testament, in John chapter 12, now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. That Goyim went to the Beit Samikdash and Shlosh Regalim. Why? It was fun. All right? They liked to. It was a nice experience, whether, they, had, whether they, they derived some kind of spiritual satisfaction from it, or just as a matter of tourism, they liked it. Okay, what about Acts chapter 17? So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well in the marketplace day by day, with those who happened to be there. So in the synagogue of the diaspora shuls, who was there? Jews, but also God-fearers. We know the God-fearers were not Jewish, but they were interested in Judaism and did certain Jewish things. So you have mixed audiences. Did Jews live in ethnic enclaves? Answer is, sometimes yes, but they were not ghettoed by law. This was not coerced. They, were not, they did not have to absolutely live like today. So Woodmere is a pretty Jewish neighborhood, but is it written in the, in the, in the Constitution of the state of New York or the, the bylaws of Nassau County or the town of Hempstead? No. It's just because people happen to, to move here. They like the neighborhood. It's, it becomes a Jewish neighborhood. So, but the game in the time of the Romans were permitted to do korbanos in the base of Middash. Yes. So I, mean, so I could see where that would fit into John Tunnel's 20, that yeah. the Greeks would be going up there for the... For religious so, reasons. Yeah, not religious reasons. to meet girls. Right, yeah. Okay, so, so we have an interesting passage in the Yerushalmi Gittin uh, 43b. Uh, look in the it says, Talmud Yerushalmi, in the middle of the second page. If you have a get, a divorce document that comes from, from outside of Israel, even though the names on it sound Gentile, it's a kosher document. The Jews in the diaspora have Gentile names. Uh, so there's such a thing as the Yehudaiki, the Judaica. What is the Judaica? The Jewish neighborhood. But it ain't Shem Yehudaiki. If there's no Jewish neighborhood, then you go to the shul. If you don't, and if you don't know shul, you get ten guys together to to uh, validate this get. The whole point is the Yehudaiki, the Judaica, is not a ghetto. It's simply a place where a lot of Jews live, and there aren't that many Gentiles. But a Gentile could live there. In Alexandria, there were five wards. Two out of the five were Jewish. It wasn't exclusively Jewish. Gentiles lived there, but the the majority were Jewish. So you could have Jews interacting with Gentiles, and therefore, by association, were, were you sure that someone was a Jew? No. Even in the synagogue, you wouldn't know. There could be a goy who happens to like going to shul. All right? I have one in my shul. He's a goy, but he has no interest in converting, but likes to come to services. Okay. Um, what about by religious practice? Can you tell who a, per, a person's identity by religious practice? So the Medrash Tanchuma has the famous case, I'm not going to read it inside, uh, of the Shas Hashmad, the restaurant. And a lot of little kids know this because it's in the Midr- little Midrash says. So I read this when I was seven years old. Um, there was, in the time of the Shmad, in the Hadrianic persecutions, there was a restaurant. And the owner of the restaurant was a Jew. And he didn't want to serve treif to the Jewish customers because of Lifnei Iver, and you felt bad for a Jew to eat treif. So he had a system. He would serve you bread. And what happened? If you, if you did the Tila you were presumed to be a Jew, and he gave you the, 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 the beef. And if you didn't do the Tila for the bread, he assumed you were a Shagetz, and he gave you pork. 
And what happened? A Jew came in, didn't wash his hands. He was given the pork. When he got the bill, it was very expensive. And they asked the owner, why is it so expensive? And the owner says, well, because I gave you my finest pork. And he says, pork, but I'm a Jew. So the, the owner says, you wouldn't know it from the, from the Tilsidayim. You, you didn't wash. Uh, so no, the moral of the story is have to do the Tilsidayim. So that's why it's in the little Midrash says, teach the seven-year-old kids that had to wash before bread. But the point of the story here is that religious observance doesn't prove religious identity. You have plenty of irreligious Jews who, by virtue of their behavior alone, you'd never know their ethnic or, or so-called religious background. Uh, and plus, you have Goyim who are interested in religious observance, like the God-fearers, who did, sometimes did Kashris, sometimes did Shabbos, uh, and sometimes went to synagogue, but were not Jews. So they might appear to be, but simply are not. Um, so we're running out of time. So just to conclude, the, uh, the, um, the Gemara Megillah, 13, 13a, If you deny idolatry, you're called a Jew. That was the rabbinic concept. That if you deny idolatry, you're called a Jew. And if you believe in idolatry, you're a Goy. So in our mind, in the minds of rabbinic Judaism, the, the shame Yehudi, that appellation, Jew, Yehudi, is something that is a bit amorphous. It's not only to the so-called uh, technically halachic Jew by, by, uh, by, uh, by, by status, by identity, but rather it's a, a combination of what we do, what we think, what we believe, and people could be anywhere on the spectrum, whether Jew or Gentile, in terms of practice and belief, and you might be identified incorrectly by, a, by your own kinsman, by a fellow Jew, or by a Gentile, whether an authority figure of the government or just a guy on the street. And so, given all these uncertainties, what is in the best interest of Judaism to clarify things, to provide some kind of rigorous standard who is a Jew and who is not? So over the next few weeks, we'll try to figure out how did these standards evolve but with, with this preliminary session to show you the chaotic nature of the whole thing, that by the visuals alone, it would be insufficient. See you next week.